There it goes, deep into center field, way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the toy cannon, now has 76 runs batted into the year. What a shot. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to episode five of Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Ragipathy. I'm Jacob Wessels. And I am Jared DeLucia. Yeah, Jared's our guest for this episode. He went to high school with us, so... Jared, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? First of all, you know, thank you guys for having me on. I'm really honored. Yeah, I went to high school with Vikram and Jacob, and I'm a huge baseball fan, baseball player throughout high school. Follow the game a lot. University of Pittsburgh now. So excited to be on here. Big guy, baseball player. Let's go. <laughs> Got a real one, bona fide. I actually happened upon something really interesting yesterday. So my family and I were watching – the movie Apollo 13. Have you guys seen this? At some point, yes. Me too. It's a great movie. Great. It's like right in the middle of the Tom Hanks run in the early 90s between like a league of their own and Toy Story. So it was 95. And it's about the, the successful failure that was the Apollo 13 mission. And so obviously the command center is in Houston. A lot of the movies is shot from the command center. And so there's one shot where as they're sort of monitoring the flight, they've got a little TV and they cut to the TV where there's a baseball game on, an Astros game, and a player is just at a home run and is rounding third, and they flash his name on the bottom of the screen. And do you know who that player was? Jimmy Wynn. Where is it from? Jimmy Wynn. That was Jimmy Wynn. Yeah, so it was Jimmy Wynn. And so when I saw that, I was like, wait, what? Ah, that was, was really cool. The toy cannon. There you go. Look at that. So we aren't the only people immortalizing him. Yeah, getting the appreciation he deserves. So So speaking of movies, we're going to talk about movies, and we're going to talk about some more baseball today. Brown lifts one to right field. It's pretty deep. Nava going back. It is gone! Second home run of the night for Dominic Brown. He is in fuego. Is there anything he can't do? Keith Law said this of Dominic Brown as he anointed the left fielder, baseball's number one prospect, midway through the 2010 season. In the end, it turns out there was a lot Dominic Brown couldn't do. After tearing his way through the minor leagues and topping prospect charts in 2010 and 2011, Brown would play his last major league game just five years later, after being sent down for the Phillies for the final time in 2015. Regarded by many as the biggest bust in Phillies history, although Kyle Drabeck might have something to say about that, Brown's career actually might be deemed a success given where he started. A 20th round pick out of Stone Mountain, Georgia, Brown wasn't on the radar of any major league teams, since people seemed to forget he played baseball altogether. A standout wide receiver in high school, Brown planned to attend the University of Miami on a football scholarship. When the Phillies saw Brown hit in a private workout, they knew they had found a diamond in the rough, offering the 28th round pick a $200,000 bonus to lure him away from football and into the major leagues. Just four years later, the former football player and 20th round pick would be topping prospect lists across the country, seen as the leader of a new wave of Philly stars who would continue the budding dynasty. But due to the abundance of major league outfield talent, Brown never got consistent playing time in 2010. And after a hand injury sidelined him for much of 2011, Brown once again went back and forth, majors to minors again in 2012. All along the way, Phillies fans blamed injuries and existing players for blocking the transcendent Brown from claiming the major league stardom he deserved. Ignoring the harsh reality that, in the end, Brown just wasn't very good. 
The outfielder was maddeningly inconsistent and boasted just a 701 OPS to go along with his always poor defense in his cups of coffee to that point. Going into his age 25 season in 2013, the Phillies, one year removed from missing the playoffs for the first time in five years, thought Dominic Brown would finally get his chance as an everyday starter with an aging core looking to make one final push. It seemed like this year, Brown was the Phillies' only hope to get back over the hump. On May 19th, 43 games into the season, Brown was OPSing a below average 703. He was hitting 243 and had seven home runs. And by all accounts, he was doing exactly what he'd done every time he'd gotten a chance in the major leagues. Nothing. Everyone, even the optimists, seemed to now agree Brown was not the Phillies' savior. He was a bust. But on May 20th, Brown hit a solo home run in a nondescript 5-1 Phillies loss to Miami. Four days later, he would homer again in their win over Washington. And then he homered over Boston. And then he hit two more home runs the next day. And then after a day off, Brown hit another two home runs against Milwaukee. Brown just kept homer. And at the end of a 15-day stretch on June 8th, Brown had homered 11 times in just 15 games. He was now OPSing 928. And he wasn't just the best hitter on the Phillies. He was one of the best hitters in the National League. Just two weeks ago, he was a replacement-level outfielder. And now he led the league in homers and was a lock to be an all-star. The rest of the year, Brown's OPS just kept dipping. He wasn't bad, but he just wasn't good. He finished the season with an 818 OPS right around league average. It seemed Brown had turned back into a pumpkin. Brown never regained his form from 2013, but in just five years of major league action, he proved Keith Law right. There was nothing he couldn't do. He could play football and baseball. He could be a 20th round pick and a top prospect. He could be the bust that ruined the Phillies' hopes of contention for nearly an entire decade. And he could be a savior who for 15 days in 2013 gave me hope that maybe, just maybe, the Phillies might be good again. You know, you called Kyle Drayback possibly the biggest bust in Phillies history, but he had a successful Phillies career too. He got us Roy Halladay. Yeah, no, I mean, Kyle, Kyle Drayback, not necessarily a Phillies prospect, but it, I, their fates are so intertwined when the Phillies had potentially the top hitting prospect and the top pitching prospect in baseball. And the fact that both of them turned out to be complete bums was kind of uh, weird. Yeah, and it's funny, too, when you mentioned Kyle Drayback, I remember that trade when we got Roy Halladay. And I was, I was happy we got Roy Halladay. I was kind of devastated that we traded Drayback, too. I was like, wow, we just gave up, like, the future. Like, I thought Drayback was going to be the guy for us. Yeah, there were a ton of articles that were debating whether the Phillies were better served giving up Brown or Drayback. You could even find articles from ESPN in, like, 2012 that were claiming the Phillies had somehow lost the deal because they had traded Drayback and kept Brown. 15 days, huh? I feel like as, as time has gone on, it's, like, in my mind, it's shrunk from, like, oh, that year Dom Brown was so good to, oh, that like half of the year that Dom Brown was so good to that month to now that half month to that two-week period that Dom Brown was amazing. He had 18 home runs at the end of this two-week stretch, and he had 27 home runs all season. You know, the rest of the year, he was just it was Dominic Brown. He was a guy with a 720 OPS, but for two weeks, he was Barry Bonds. Like, I totally forgot that it was like in that short period of time but I do remember that season, you know, very well, him doing well. I was like, oh, here we go. Again, guys, like, here's the future. Not to shit on Reese Hoskins, who I love, but it wasn't Reese Hoskins-esque because when Reese Hoskins was hitting all his home runs, he was hitting all of his home runs against, like, Miami. 
And so it was like he's basically doing this off triple-A pitching. Dominic Brown hit the majority of his home runs against Boston, who would go on to win the World Series that year. During that period, my brother got a Dom Brown jersey. He's probably one of <laughs> two million people to, to go in on some Dom Brown gear. Oh, do I have a Dom Brown gear story for you guys? I went to a Phillies game at some point, like right after Dominic Brown had gone on this crazy run, and I was determined that I was going to buy a Dom Brown jersey. I was like, I have to buy a Dom Brown jersey. He's the future of the Phillies. And I go, and of course, I, they're all sold out because everyone wants a Dom Brown jersey. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> so I look up at the wall of jerseys. I had committed to spending this money on a jersey. I knew I was going to get one, but now that there were no Dominic Brown jerseys, I needed to figure out what other jersey I was going to get. And I look up at the wall and I see one name that jumps out to me. I have never seen anybody wearing this jersey. So I purchased it. And I am the proud owner of a Freddie Galvis jersey. Nice. Which at the time and for years after, I I deemed it like the worst purchase of my life. Because I was like, he sucks. He's a bum. You know, come 2017, every other person on that Phillies team was gone. And Freddie Galvis was the longest tenured Philly. And I still had a jersey of a guy on the team. As much as Freddie Galvis wasn't one of the most memorable Phillies per se, he was really consistent in the field. And he, his power numbers ticked up a little bit. He had over 20 dingers one year, I think. That was when we knew the balls were juiced. Yeah. He's <laughs> in the bat he uses. is gigantic. Great player. But, like, he is the staple of the dark era of Phillies baseball. Yeah, he and is. Somehow I kind of accidentally got myself a relic from that. I've got a much related story to that. One maybe even a little bit more painful considering the options. So Jared was here in eighth grade. The music department at our our middle school took a trip to Dorney Park. And so I've always been like a decent basketball player. But on this day, I decided to absolutely go off. They had a three-point contest there. And I kept competing over and over and over again. I set the high score for the day. And I won all these prizes, like three basketballs, a stuffed dog, And then for getting the high score, I was able to get a jersey. And so I was like, okay, I got to stay loyal to the soil. I got to get a Sixers jersey. And mind you, there was like a KD jersey, James Harden, Chris Paul jersey, any of those stars you can think of all on the wall. And there was one Sixers jersey there. And that Sixers jersey was that of Michael Carter Williams, the reigning rookie of the year. And so that's the jersey that I picked out of all of them. Michael Carter Williams is an icon, though. Biggest bum. I love Michael Carter Williams. He ended up being the rookie of the year because he got all of the stats for this awful, awful Sixers team. I found a story written by ESPN when Dominic Brown was going on this crazy run. And when he was going on this crazy run, he wasn't just like a small story. He was the story in baseball. ESPN was like, it's crazy that we never thought months ago that we would write four Dominic Brown stories in a week, but here we've, we've done it now. They were kind of talking about how Dominic Brown might become a franchise defining star, like Brett Laurie. I mean, I guess you can kind of put them in somewhat of the same category. The thing about Brett Laurie, though, is I don't really recall him being a franchise defining star, even at his best. When he was young, people thought that he was going to be great. I mean, he might have one season where he decently produced. Brett Laurie had just come off a four-and-a-half war age 22 season. But, like, he also OPS 730 and he hit 11 home runs. Like, I don't – it doesn't seem franchise-defining. I don't know. Because it just shows you that not only can we not project prospects, we can't even project actual major leaguers. 
But I kind of mentioned before Dominic Brown liked to feast off of um, liked to feast off of, of, of good competition because he was hitting home runs off the Red Sox. And that kind of reigned true for his prospect status. So he got, first got invited to big league camp in 2010. There was obviously a lot of hype around him. He wasn't quite the number one prospect in baseball, but he was on a lot of top 20, top 25 lists. And he comes up and his first at-bat of big league spring training is against Justin Verlin. And he just hits a mammoth home run. And so that was kind of where the legend of Dominic Brown was born. After the game, they were interviewing like Rollins and Howard, and they were just saying, that was legit. I've never seen a prospect hit like that. You know, this guy is the future. Now he's actually back in the Philly area, I think. Like, he's a hitting coach. Really? Yeah, he's working at like one of those like kids' academies like that we would go to when we were 12. And even though Dominic Brown might not have had the amazing career that many thought he was going to have for the Phillies, if I was a little year right now and I had hitting lessons from Dominic Brown, I'd be happy as a clam. Yeah, well, those kids probably don't even know who Dominic Brown is. That's like the sad thing is when you realize how young some of these kids are. Yeah, that's true. That's like, true. Hopefully they're uh, brushing up on their history. So Dominic Brown was kind of a, a weird study at the time because especially like 2013, 2014, this is the very, very beginning of kind of the three true outcome stuff. You really just heard about it on like analytics-based sites. And so a lot of the writing at this time is these analytics-based sites kind of having a conniption at Dominic Brown because Dominic Brown, when he won player of the month in May and hit 12 home runs in the month of May, he hit 12 home runs and walked zero times. Wow. He has hit more home runs in a month than anyone who's walked zero times. The person who has hit the next most home runs in a month with zero walks hit nine home runs. A lot of these analytics sites were just like, yeah, Dominic Brown is like interesting, but he's mostly just getting lucky because he's not, he literally doesn't walk. And he actually had more intentional walks over the course of like a two month stretch than, than, than unintentional walks. And he strikes out way too much. So if the home runs stop coming, he's in real trouble. And thankfully, they never did. <laughs> no, never <laughs> for the rest of his career. That might do it. The throw from Smith. The Blue Jays win it. Mosby scores. And they'll take a 2-0 lead to Kansas City on the Al Oliver base hit. Back when I was a young lad, I was on the Wikipedia page for people who share my birthday. I was like, oh, cool. Dwight D. Eisenhower has my birthday. Usher has my birthday. That's awesome. I was looking for a ball player. And the best ball player who shared my birthday was Al Oliver. First, I'm like, okay, like this guy is probably all right. I've never heard of him before. I started digging deeper. I'm like, this dude was ridiculous. Like he was a very, very good ball player. And, you know, a little background on him. He actually grew up a Pirates fan, which is the team he eventually played for. And something interesting, his mom said she thought that he'd be a ball player by the time he was one years old. Starting out with his career, I want to start with a little quote. He said, I'm going to have a good year because I'm Al Oliver. I always have a good year. The question is how good. He was very confident in his abilities, and his stats show that. Uh, you know, eventually he was playing along the likes of, like, Roberto Clemente, Willie Stargell, Dave Parker. And, you know, he talked about Roberto being a teammate with Roberto Clemente. He said how much of an impact Roberto had on him, you know, how good of a teammate he was. The Pirates won the World Series in 1971. They had ton of great players back then which is kind of why I like to focus on Al Oliver because a lot of those players overshadow Al Oliver and this is kind of a bit of a theme in Al Oliver's career he later played for the Expos who was on the Expos with Al Oliver Andre Dawson Gary Carter Tim Raines three Hall of Famers so Al Oliver was always a great player but possibly overshadowed and eventually 
goes to the Rangers, hits 300 every year, four straight years in a row. And 1980, really, I think this captures Al Oliver's story very well. Sports Illustrated called him baseball's best kept secret. And it's true. I mean, he became a lifetime 300 hitter, 303. I mean, he produced year in and year out. And, you know, his best year, 82, 331, 204 hits, 22 home runs, 43 doubles. In uh, 1985, he eventually ended up on the Blue Jays, who won the AL East that year. And in the playoffs, Al Oliver did really well, hit over 300, looking like he still had a lot left in the tank. But that was the last time that Al Oliver played in baseball. Had over 2,700 career hits at this point, and it was over after a great playoff run in 1985. So why did it end? But in 1975, there's a loophole that was created allowing players to become free agents. So teams are a little, they're a little pissed off about this. They wanted to get the, the power back. You know, the players had the power now. Eventually, the commissioner of baseball, Peter Ubroth, he uh, and other teams wanted to only re-sign their own free agents, and then a lot of the free agents were just kind of like left in the dirt. After the 85 season, only four players switched teams, and Al Oliver was a free agent after 1985. Um, So Al Oliver was subject to this, couldn't find a team to play for because commissioner and the teams were colluding to not sign free agents. Looking back on it years later, Al Oliver actually said, I could have easily DH for another four or five years without any problems at the rate he was going at. So you figure four or five more years of Al Oliver, already at 2,700 hits at that time, could have easily eclipsed 3,000 hits on his way to a Hall of Fame career. So this collusion, a lot of people think it costs him his Hall of Fame chances, even though I personally think that he's still a very good candidate. Also, just like kind of funny stories, in 1969, he ate three or four pieces of cake that had been delivered to the clubhouse. They contained tree nuts. He didn't know he was allergic to tree nuts. And he had to be revived in the clubhouse. And Al Oliver, furthermore, was part of Doc Ellis's perfect game. The, uh, the theory is that Doc Ellis was on LSD. But interestingly enough, Al Oliver didn't think that he was on LSD. He didn't, he didn't think that was possible. I think I'd buy the LSD story. He had so many walks in that game. So I kind of don't doubt that hitters couldn't hit him, but he was also seeing like two batters at the plate. So he was pretty wild. One of the more interesting moments in MLB history. Al Oliver, part of the first ever all-African-American lineup ever. The lineup that day was Rennie Stennett, second base, Gene Klein's at center field, Roberto Clemente, Stargell, Manny Sankian, Dave Cash, Jackie Hernandez, Doc Ellis, and Al Oliver. Even though the barrier had been broken, the number of African-Americans in the majors like hasn't hasn't been huge. Like Adam Jones had comments a few years ago where he was like, it's still a white man's game. Interesting to think about the fact that there is not a tremendous amount of African-American talent, like let alone at some positions. To wrap up my take on Al Oliver, I just want to read off his stats and his awards for his career. Seven-time All-Star, three-time Silver Slugger, batting title in 82, most hits in the NL in 82. He actually holds a record, which is he set an American League record with 21 total bases against the Detroit Tigers during a doubleheader by hitting four home runs, a double, and a triple while playing with the Texas Rangers. So, again, this is a doubleheader. This is not a single game. Yeah, no, but still, in a doubleheader, that's crazy. Yeah. 
His Hall of Fame case is certainly fascinating. I mean, if Harold Baines can make the Hall of Fame, anyone can make the Hall of Fame. I, that, I, that's the name I always bring up, too, like when I make anyone's Hall of Fame case. Yeah. That's funny. It's funny you say that because reading about Al Oliver, people were like, if Harold Baines made it. Harold Baines had like 100 or so more hits than Al Oliver. When you said 2,700 hits, I was like, wow, that's a lot. I did not realize that at all. I'm hard-pressed to believe that even if he played an additional three seasons and got to 3,000 hits, his overall resume gets that much better. It's just that he played three kind of below-average seasons and got to 3,000 hits. And so it's kind of like the Nick Marcakis debate of, like, does 3,000 hits just make you a Hall of Fame? Yeah, I agree. Whenever that is that 3,000 hits is eclipsed by a player who might not be Hall of Fame worthy, that's going to cause a lot of stir in baseball. Yeah. I'm so disappointed that Marcakis kind of got hurt and had a down year this year. Because Marcakis was, like, actually on pace to really make a pretty good run at it. And then this year he only got 118 hits because he missed 50 games. But if he had had a you know, good season last year, you're not even asking him to do that much. You're asking him to be at like 150 sits a season until he's like 38, 39-ish, which like if he can hang around, he could maybe do. And even if he gets close, it's like, do you make him a Hall of Famer just for doing that, even though he's a one-time All-Star? Yeah, that's what's made 3,000 hits a kind of nice benchmark because who knows who the first very good but not necessarily Hall of Fame player is to eclipse that. I hate Nick Marcakis, but I am rooting for him to get to 3,000 hits because that would just, I think, kind of force people to completely reevaluate Hall of Fame voting as we know it. Yeah, the cool thing about Oliver, you said seven-time All-Star, and four of those came when he was between 33 and 36. Oh, yeah. It all goes back to that quote. Every year, he's like, I'm going to have a good year. It's just a matter of how good. He was just steady. He produced. That's who Oliver was. It's kind of interesting that in 82, he led two triple crown categories because he won the batting title and he led the league in RBI. I mean, he was 35. I think that the the collusion wrinkle of Al Oliver's career is really especially interesting because players take so much heat for cocaine or for steroids or for this or for that scandal. And, like, I feel like the owners really do not get their just desserts. They really don't get, you know, looked down upon as much for the things that they perpetrate, like collusion. I think Uberoth is in the Hall of Fame, nonetheless, but, like, why should he be in the Hall of Fame over Pete Rhodes? It astounded me. And like you said, I think there is so much focus on all these players that have done wrong. You know, somehow the owners get cut some slack. And I will say that Al Oliver, he got paid eventually, like a decade later for what should have been his 1986 season, like $680,000. But he wanted more because, like I said before, he thought he had four or five more years left in him. You mean you own the team and the stadium? I would like to announce that I've named myself the new manager of the Minnesota Twins. Really, it's not that easy. There's a lot to this game. A lot. You know how hard it is to manage? It's the American League. They got the DH. How hard can it be? I'm not going to win anything with a kid for a manager. I know you guys think I'm a joke. Castle Rock Entertainment is proud to present Little Big League. I was caught in the trance as a kid. You know, the trance of Field of Dreams. Everyone loves that movie. Everyone gets so romantic. Oh, it's a father-son. 
and it's baseball. Oh, I watched that and I just love the game. I thought that too. I was in the same boat as a kid. It was a blockbuster regular for me. I mean, who doesn't love Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones? But in the last few years, I've come to realize something. Field of Dreams is merely trying to convince you that it loves baseball. I believe that the people that made it love baseball, sure. I know Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones, they love baseball. But I think it goes too far towards that sentiment of trying to be like, baseball is the most romantic thing ever. Whereas some forgotten movies just show you the game that we love so much in a very realistic and down-to-earth way. And by the end of the movie, you realize, I love baseball. And that movie knows baseball. And that movie loves baseball. The movie I'm talking about, of course, is 1994's Little Big League. On the surface, Little Big League sounds like any other kid's baseball movie. Oh, wow, a kid in the big leagues. Sounds like a real family romp. The kid appoints himself manager, and he goes on this wacky, whimsical run with these underdog, scrappy Minnesota twins, and they put together a successful season. Very Hollywood. You've heard the story. But that is about as fantastical as it gets. If you can put yourself in the realm of unbelievability for a second, from the moment that this little 12-year-old Billy Haywood gets the team and starts managing it, it actually ends up being a very realistic Major League Baseball movie, one of the most realistic sports movies there's ever been. I love every bit of it. I love how it brings you into the clubhouse and it gives you a real clubhouse atmosphere. You know, you've got personalities on the team. They don't go outlandish the way that some movies like Major League or Angels in the Outfield do. It really just gives you a nice, realistic baseball movie that doesn't dumb down the sport to its audience. And what you get at the end is a product that makes you realize why you love the game so much. It's a fantastic movie. First, I know you guys watched it for either the first time or the first time in a long time. This was a staple of my childhood, but I want to hear what you guys thought of it. I was constantly impressed with the tidbits of baseball knowledge, whether it be in the game or the one scene I remember very well uh, was towards the beginning of the movie. The situations and tendencies where Billy yeah. has to prove himself. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's a notable scene. I love that scene. Let's talk about that scene. For those that don't know, Billy presents to the pitching coach and the general manager the idea that he, he's the owner at this point, that he is going to name himself manager after he just fired Dennis Farina, the uh, hot-headed previous manager. And so the guys are like, Billy, there's a lot of wrinkles to this game. We get that you know a lot of baseball history, but you need to know situations and tendencies. And they give him this whole situational layout where it's like, okay, you're playing the Yankees. It's the bottom of the eighth. We're at bat. Our number three hitter, our best hitter is up. You've got a speedy second baseman on first base. What are you going to do? And, you know, he asks about all the different situations that come into play, like who's resting their bullpen, who's catching, all this and that. And he's like, all right, Lou's going to swing away. And the pitching coach is like, no, see, 
the scales on first has got good speed. Lose a good bunner. You're going to want to bunt him over. And he's like, no, 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 no. Because you do that, then what's going to happen is they walk the next guy, and then you bring in Steve Farr, who's got the palm ball, to pitch to this righty that's coming up that has no speed whatsoever, and it's going to result in a double play. And then he's like, okay, so you can pinch hit for that right-handed hitter. He's like, great, now you've taken the bat out of our three, four, and five hitters. Not a great trip through the heart of our order. It ends with the GM being like, any questions, Mac? Pitching coach Mac is like, yeah, what's he need me for? I love that scene because that's perfect, and it's exactly the way we think now. You don't bunt ever, especially not when your best player is at bat. But sometimes back then, they really did that. I was watching some Chinese baseball the other morning, as one does. The go-ahead run was on first base. There was nobody out. Their best hitter was coming up with just homered in his previous at-bat. And, of course, they asked him to lay down a sacrifice bunt. And I was so mad. And, you know, that's just the kind of things that this movie captures. It, it is really a movie for true baseball fans because every true baseball fan understands and knows exactly how Billy is thinking, it, no matter if you're 50 or if you're 12. So let's talk about Billy. Billy is played by Luke Edwards, who at the time of filming was actually 12. It's a guy who going in apparently didn't really know much about baseball at all. He didn't go on to have much of a career after this, but he's amazing in this role because he's 12 years old and in every scene he's in he convinces you that he's the smartest person in the room with all these adults and baseball players that yeah while comedic aren't like zany it's not like some of the players in rookie of the year who are completely wacko like he's with normal adults who actually do know the game of baseball And he's able to convince you that he really can hold court there. Yeah, you mentioned Rookie of the Year. And that's, I think, the the real problem or the real reason why Little Big League is left in the dust. Because at their core, they are very similar movies. Exactly. It's a very similar premise. There's very similar subplots, even with, like, the mom and the star player and all of these things. But... At, like at the end of the day, they are very different movies because you watch Little Big League and you think that you've watched like a real baseball movie with like that happened in the real world. It's not hard to imagine Little Big League happening with a normal manager. In fact, I would contend that the Twins had already done Little Big League a few years before that as a real baseball team, right. and they just replaced the normal old manager with a kid. I'm so glad that you brought up like the differences between those two movies. Let's talk about some of the things conspiring against Little Big League. So Little Big League comes out the summer of 1994. In the years preceding that, you get Bull Durham in 1988. And I think that sparks a run of some of the best, some of the most publicized, some of the most beloved baseball movies of all time. You get Bull Durham in 88, Eight Men Out, another great underrated baseball movie also in 88. You get Field of Dreams and Major League in 89. In 92, you get A League of Their Own, which is maybe the best baseball movie ever. So in 93, you have The Sandlot and Rookie of the Year. In 94, you've got Angels in the Outfield and Little Big League. The Sandlot is the gold standard. That is like as good a baseball movie as you're ever going to get. You know, you've got kids. That's what's at the heart of baseball. 
you got a lot of baseball playing scenes, you know, a lot of nostalgia goes into it. It's just, it's a fantastic movie. There's nothing really bad you can say about The Sandlot. Kids, baseball, we've decided that that formula works. Now Rookie of the Year puts the kids in the major leagues, and we decide that that works. People like that movie. The Sandlot grossed $34.3 million. Rookie of the Year grossed $31 million. Angels in the Outfield comes out just after Little Big League, and now this is the big one. Not only is this kids in the major leagues, but this is Disney. And you've got, you've got some really likable actors in this movie. You've got Danny Glover, Christopher Lloyd, young Joseph Gordon-Levitt, young Matthew McConaughey playing one of the players. Like that part of the Disney machine. So that grosses $50 million. Little Big League, a relatively smaller movie. It's a Castle Rock Productions picture, which is a fantastic production company from Rob Reiner and the director of this movie, Andrew Scheinman. To this point, Castle Rock Pictures had done a few good men and misery when Harry met Sally Shyman had been a, produ- a producer on the princess bride and stand by me. And later that very year, castle rock pictures would produce the Shawshank redemption. Still not as big a film. It only grosses $12 million. So you've got the tire from all of these baseball movies in that seven year stretch In those two years, you've got four movies that are all about kids in baseball, three of them being about kids in the major leagues. And so you think that they all probably have the same premise. You know, the kid affects the major league team through heart and whimsy and isn't very realistic, but it's for kids. So who cares? But as a 20-year-old adult, I appreciate Little Big League as much as, if not even more, than I did when I watched it 12 years ago for the first time. So Little Big League kind of got the short end of the stick in that sense. And also, if you think of 1994 in baseball terms, what happens? The strike. You know, at this point, people are tired of baseball in general because baseball is, doesn't have a very high Q score with people. So I think all of those really conspired against Little Big League. It just came out at the wrong time. I also think, so the, the climax of the movie put, pits them against the Mariners. We can talk about that now. Perfect team to pick. Obviously a team that's not going to come very expensive because the Mariners have always sucked, but they've got two of the biggest stars in the game. Yet yeah, it's very weird because it's, it's like they predicted the future almost because the Mariners would go on to do almost exactly what the Minnesota Twins do in 1995. So 1994 would have been the first year of the wild card had the playoffs actually happened. So the producers of this movie pick up on that and they produce what is the first wild card race ever in fiction or in fact. And they have a one game playoff, a game 163 right at the end between the Mariners and the Twins. And one year later, in 1995, the Mariners would play a one-game playoff for the AL West against the Angels. It's almost as if the Mariners had watched the movie and went, you know, it would be cool if we did that. Because they were, like, way behind the Angels. They came back at the last second. I guarantee you Lou Pinella was taking notes of what <laughs> Billy was doing. I also was found very interesting, like, the tidbits of history that they toss in there the one scene i remember very well is you know billy it's at the beginning of the movie billy and his uh, grandfather around the stadium 
And, uh, you know, his grandfather asked the question, it was like, who was on deck when Bobby Thompson big home run? Young man by the name of Willie Mays, who was a rookie that year. That's a fantastic and, fact. And, and I, I never knew that. I could guarantee you that most people that were watching the movie didn't know that. And I was like, wow. Like, I just learned something really cool, you know? They reference a lot of historical things. Like, they reference Freddie Lindstrom in, what, the 1924 World Series. First scene, Billy's able to point to a time when the Brooklyn Ball Club three people were on the same base, and so they awarded it the base to Dazzy Vance. And Babe Herman was the batter. So, by the way, I think the four best baseball movies came out in back-to-back-to-back years. Because in 92, you get a league of their own. In 93, you get the Sandlot. In 94, you get a little big league and Ken Burns baseball. I think it is a much better movie than people give it credit for. But I think the problem with Little Big League, and the reason why it is not one of my favorite movies, is because players in the movie are major characters, but they have no character development. You don't learn anything about them. And you barely like know who they are as baseball players. Obviously, the central character is Billy, so you know Billy goes through an entire character arc. But a lot of these players who are characters in the movie all the way through experience almost no character arc to me. I agree that they don't get character development. They're really just there. They don't even get backstory. I've seen this movie so many times that I know where their roles fit in. I think the guy who hits the game-tying home run in the game 163 scales. I think he scales. Like, the second baseman. We learn nothing of the entire movie. I'll tell you we what we know about, about him scales. except that he's fast. I'll tell you what we know about Mickey Scales. We know that he's a young prospect who is probably a good fielder because he's not that good with the bat. And we find out about all of this. Everybody doubts his hitting abilities. We find out about we find out about that as stepping to the plate in game one sixty three. What I'd like I'd like to learn about the fact that people don't think he's as good as he is. We know this though. We know this. There's a line where he's like, "I like." I remember this. And the guy standing right next to him is like, "Of course he does. Yeah, only one who thinks he can hit." Dennis Farina is like, "Scales, you think that's funny? I'll tell you what I think is funny. That thing you call a swing." Pick up, or you're gonna head right back down to Triple A. You have to pick up on little context clues. I just think that this movie takes a different angle on being true to baseball, and like maybe it would just be too much for them to be like all the stuff while also trying to build the character arc of Billy. Like the story on Mike McGreevy, he's the best pitcher. Billy's like, you should be an all star. He says that at the beginning of the movie. He's on an expiring contract. He's about to be a free agent. He doesn't want to be on the Twins, but then Billy has a fantastic, you know, interchange with him where McGreevy's like, yeah, maybe those scouting reports are kind of giving me trouble. You probably should just bench me. And then Billy's like, nope, we're going to play you. He's like, I don't know if that's going to be good because of my forgetting of all the scouting reports. And Billy's like, well, that's your choice. You're the free agent. Hey, Mac, uh, what's the going rate for an absent-minded pitcher who can't get anybody out? And then he immediately goes out there, and he's fantastic, which is optimistic about the way organizations feel about free agency. It almost, like, slips in there. Like, Billy, as the owner, also, you can see, has a very healthy relationship with the concept of free agency. I think you're right. They really don't get a whole lot of character development per se but here's why i love the cast of players so first off we talked about the mlb players a little bit along with griffey who plays a very anti-griffey in this movie and i love it because he's just intimidating and he's just going to work 
and he's just awe-inspiring. I really think that they said, hey, Ken, I want you to go out there, and I want you to play Barry Bonds. Like The idea that Bonds was more of like a, a movie star like attraction type of character. No, more like the idea of Bonds is very detached. Like Ken Griffey doesn't go out there in this movie and play, you know, like with a smile on his face the way he always did and like laughing. He he's like going to he's like going to the office. He played up the villain a little bit. Yeah. You get him, yeah. you get Randy Johnson, the other MLB players that they play, you see Pudge Rodriguez, you see Tim Raines, Paul O'Neill, uh, Rafael Palmero. But so the players on the team, let's talk about the players on the team, right? So Luke Collins is the first baseman. And so that's the star. That's the biggest name. Timothy Busfield is a real actor. You know, he played baseball in high school. The right fielder for the twins in this movie was played by a guy named Michael Papa John. He played baseball at LSU in the mid eighties. One of the first like really good LSU teams. And you know who he played with on that LSU team? A young Albert Bell. Ah, wow. There's the guy that plays center played college football. The DH, the aging guy that Billy has to let go, Jerry. Yeah, that's played by Dwayne Davis, who played college football and is actually the son of Hall of Fame defensive end Willie Davis, who unfortunately just passed away a few days ago, but was an all-time great for Lombard Hmm. Packers. Scott Patterson, the guy that plays Mike McGreevy, he pitched in the minors. The guy that plays the catcher, he played in the minors. The guy that plays third, he played in the minors. And then Blackout, the big relief pitcher, played by Bradley J. Leslie. That guy pitched in the majors. Backup first baseman, Leon Alexander. He's played by Leon Bull Durham, who played in the majors and actually was the guy who in the 84 NLCS playing for the Cubs against the Padres flubbed a ground ball at first base that went right between his legs. It's one of the classic Cubs blunders of all time. Cost them a pennant. And so, like, he's kind of a goat in a long list of goats for the Cubs. But they also filmed a scene in Little Big League where he misses a ground ball. It's great. And the, the last one on the, on the Twins roster is their shortstop was played by Kevin Elster, who's probably the most well-known. One of the biggest things for me that I thought was kind of funny is that we had these Seattle Mariners who had not made the playoffs and had not like, seen a lot of success. Again, 95 was like the first year of their kind of run of dominance. And they're like out there celebrating. Like they won. They were going to the playoffs. And what are they thinking when they're doing <laughs> Because are they like, oh, this is cool and fun. Maybe we should do this next year. They certainly had to be thinking about this movie when they were contending in 95. Not only do they predict that the Mariners are going to play in and win like a one last playoff game, they also predict, they probably talked to Lou Pinella about this, okay, but yeah. they also predict Randy Johnson coming in for a relief appearance in an elimination game. There are too many things about it that are just bizarre. That like you have to be like, what was going through Ken Griffey Jr.'s mind when he was like, "Oh crap, this is the same game." The next thing that I want to talk about is really the X factor of this movie. So let's talk about the music here. The guy in charge of the music was Stanley Clark, who is a jazz legend, Philly guy, also. Yeah, very good bass player. Played with uh, played with the likes of Return to Forever. One of the 
premier jazz fusion guys ever. And oh, so yeah. the kind of artists that you see, along with Stanley Clark, he got some Jeff Beck guitar solos scoring. They're really, they re- they're really going for the fusion in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, and you get Booker T and the MGs. That's a great pick because, like, when you hear like when you hear a song like Green Onions, you're just oh. like, that sounds like a baseball song. It is the quintessential baseball song. And any young directors out there, if you want to make a baseball movie, include anything by Booker T and the MGs. You cannot go wrong. And then you also get the band right? It's not like they're in their prime, but it's still pretty good. You get the band and one of the montages, Stuff You Gotta Watch, that's a band song. And you get Dion, the Runaround Sue montage, that's a fantastic song. And then the one, Jared, that I know you're not gonna like, but I stick by them using it, is they use center field in one of the montages. (laughs) And as overused as that song is, it still fits. Oh yeah, not not a bad song at all. I mean, the reason I always had an issue with it is just because of it being overplayed. Uh, it is. You how, much, like, how much more baseball can you get? It's a great pick. And overall, the music is just fantastic. I mean, think about it too, like baseball being America's pastime. Also think about the American musical landscape and yeah. you just hook people from all different parts of the American musical landscape. Fantastic slice of Americana. I'll end with this. He also doesn't make the playoffs as the manager. He does very, very well, but he loses out on the wild card. Right. That's something that's fantastic. I hate to spoil the ending for everyone out there, but so many times you get to the big game and yay, you win. You get the Disney Hollywood movie ending. You win the big game. But baseball is more heartbreak than anything. The best batters fail seven out of 10 times heroes have fallen because of betting or drugs yeah cheating you don't always win in the end and i love that they have that here yeah i think it's great i mean sometimes you just root for a bad outcome just because it makes it different because so many movies have that disney hollywood ending it's like but it was realistic it's super hard to get to the playoffs it's even harder to win a world series and honestly it kind of summarizes the 1994 season really well 1994 was a great summer of baseball with Tony Gwynn hitting 394, Ken Griffey Jr. and Matt Williams being on pace to break Roger Maris's record, the Expos being the best team in baseball. And it was cut short, and the players went on strike. And it was the same way for this Twins team in this movie, where it was this fantastic Cinderella run. They had a 12-year-old as their manager, and they were legitimately doing good things. They didn't have angels helping them. This kid didn't break his arm in a weird way that fantastically made him a 100-mile-per-hour fireballer. No, they were winning through real baseball strategy and just happening to do so with a 12-year-old kid at the helm, and it didn't work out in the end. It was cut short the way that the 94 season was. But one more wrinkle I have is that this movie's got a lot of humor, like a lot of very subtle humor. It's not slapstick major league humor. It's not stuff that's going to make you fall out of your chair laughing. The funniest part of this movie, the play-by-play announcer, Wally Holland, he's up there. Like Movies that do sports and especially baseball love to make funny play-by-play announcers. John Candy in Rookie of the Year and Bob Euchre in Major League are two great examples. Wally Holland is fantastic because he's always, the joke with him is that it's very subtle, but he's always pulling out these like crazy weird stats. And it's fun to laugh at because... Sports people and stat heads like us 
always pull out these wacky stats and he takes it so far. He's like, and coming up next is Jerry who is hitting 306 against pitchers he's seeing for the first time at home whose home games are not played in a dome. I laughed out loud. I thought that was really funny. He does that a few times through the movie. And that guy who plays Wally Holland is a guy named John Gordon, who actually was the Twins play-by-play guy from 87 through, like, 2011. So he called both of their World Series wins, and he's a really good play-by-play announcer in his own right. And he got to have a lot of fun with that role because he, he has some of the best lines in the whole movie, but very subtle. So I appreciate that role so much. Andrew Scheinman, the director, in his first and only directorial performance, by the way, which I think is an absolute winner, I think he took a lot of consultation in this. I think he took a lot of consultation for Lou Pinella for that final game against the Mariners. I think he talked to as many people that really knew baseball as he could because he had to have because this movie knows baseball better than most, maybe all movies about baseball. Like it really knows the game more intimately than Field of Dreams. People think it loves baseball. It doesn't even love baseball enough to put Shoeless Joe on the left side of the plate or give him a Southern accent. You think that Shoeless Joe talks like he's in Goodfellas? What are you talking <laughs> about? So the last thing is I, I, I am so high on this movie and I'm securing that knowledge because none other than my man, Roger Ebert, gave Little Big League three and a half out of four stars. He calls it a movie that does not dumb down the subject matter for its audience and is unpredictable throughout. And no one can review a movie like Raj, and I think he got it absolutely right in this case. Little Big League is one of the great forgotten movies out there, and I think it's really one of the best baseball movies ever, let alone one of the best baseball movies that no one talks about. So that does it for episode five of Toy Cannon Cannon. Thank you guys for joining us. And Jared, thank you for hopping in on a guest appearance. I'm sure you'll be back. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a great time. We'll see you later. 